Thank you. Um, it's somewhat ironic to be here today as an American Middle East correspondent um, at a conference about the media's role in promoting peace when not only do journalists in general thrive on conflict, but in the Middle East in particular, war is quite often how careers are made. It's not particularly nice to talk about, um, but I myself got one of my big breaks as a freelancer in Baghdad in 2004 when an Iraqi translator working for time was murdered right in front of the bureau and the magazine evacuated most of its staff and took me on as a stringer. My coverage of another war, the Israeli 2006 invasion of my home country, Lebanon, helped me eventually get a staff job and become time, Time's main Middle East correspondent. And um, now that I've largely left Time and then freelancing again for Time and other publications, a, a regional war would put my services in that much more demand. So you may have reason to doubt my sincerity um, when I say this is a lousy business model and not a sustainable career path. Um, uh, Mike gave a much more subtle um, and balanced uh, view of the pros and cons of, of war reporting, but uh, please trust me when I say I wish that uh, peace correspondent was a more glamorous title than war correspondent. <laughs> and if uh, global integration became the white hot narrative of the post-Cold War era, rather than the clash of civilizations. Um, and it's also, I think peace is a better story. War may sell newspapers, but at the end of the day, um, not just Americans, but we all like a happy ending. Um, which may go a long way to explaining why so much, of in the, so much of us in the Western press, so many of us in the Western press have been so thrilled to cover the dem democracy uprisings in the Arab world that began this winter, but which for some reason have become known as the Arab Spring. Journalists love covering revolutions much more than wars, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, especially today in Misrata or in the streets of the city, Syrian city of Dara. Doing one's part, however small, of turning the glare of international attention on the latest chapter in the, in the struggle for human process is a, a much cleaner business. Um, and perhaps because for the first time in, in almost 60 years, it's possible through the democracy uprisings to see the possibility of sustainable peace in the region for um, change without violence, um, I thought it would be worthwhile to talk in this conference about the Arab Spring. And, um, but with also uh, the caveat that um, it kind of caught me and many other people with our pants down. In, in January, I was preparing to start the Reuters program and looking forward to life in Oxford um, until the day of rage in, in Cairo finally knocked me out of my tea-induced stupor. And, um, and the Reuters Institute very kindly allowed to postpone until this term and so that I could hop on a plane and go to Egypt and then Iran and then Libya. I am, though, comforted by the fact that almost every, everyone who writes or talks about the region for a living, including the CIA, didn't see this coming either. Still, some soul-searching is in order, and I'm not so easily absolved 
when I look back at the eight years I'd spent reporting on the region from Tehran to Gaza and ask if, if I've done enough work about human rights and democracy issues. Now, at this point in my Reuters fellowship, I haven't yet done the systematic research into what my colleagues in the American and British press have been doing, and I can only offer myself up as an example. But I think it's pretty fair to say that, though there are, of course, better and worse journalists than, than I am, I, I think my experiences are fairly representative. And so, of course, my knee-jerk reaction is, no, I didn't do enough. Um, had I known what would happen, would it, what happened in advance, of course I would have loved to have spent more time with bloggers and opposition leaders, and I'm kicking myself for never writing that Facebook in the Middle East story. Um, but actually, when I, when I take a deep breath and, and Google myself, <laughs> with, the, with the exception of the fact that I I've still have written next to nothing about bloggers and Facebook, not only do I, did I stay on top of humanitarian issues, um, but the growing anger and hopelessness of average people, the slow pace of reform, the failings of the region's elites, all these were consistent themes in my work. From life under siege in Gaza, the abuses of Iraqi Kurdish leaders, women's rights in Saudi Arabia, the plight of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, poverty and drought in Yemen, the fate of Iraqi refugees. I and most of my generation of journalists who cut their teeth in the region, starting with wars, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, are, are, it's fair to say, we're more drawn to stories about average people and life as it's lived now um, than we are to palaces and power brokers. Not all of this is idealistic. We're younger and we don't have access to those things. And, the baby boom generation is still hanging on to those jobs in London and New York and Rome. Um, but uh, but it, it's true. I, I, we think uh, these things are make for better stories, and we do think that's what, what people want to read these days. Um, and. We all knew that the, the region's status quo of authoritarian governments and occupations was untenable, but thought that change would express itself in, in one of three forms pro towards a, a regional peace process organized by the great powers, something that seemed highly unlikely, uh, regional war between some combination of Iran and its allies and America and its allies, or general decay and chaos and instability that would help spread radical Islamist extremist groups. I myself thought a, a regional war was in the offing, offing and that the Middle East looked a whole lot more like Europe in 1914 than Europe in 1848, which it, se it seems today. So why was I unable to read the writing on the wall? Um, for one thing, and um, here's the apology start. Um, for one thing, in, until recently, it really didn't seem like opposition groups in, in the Middle East, except for the Islamist oppositions, they really seemed ineffectual and at times something like a sad joke. I, I'll, one country that I know very well, Syria, 
when I was there um, in 2005 as a freelancer with plenty of time on my hands, uh, a friend who was the editor of a local magazine took me to uh, a prominent opposition member in the, his basement office in, a, um, in, in Damascus. And um, this opposition official spent a good 45 minutes complaining to us about quality of life issues like the fact that there were so many, there was so much bad traffic in Damascus because the government was allowing the importation of cheap Asian cars. Uh, traffic is a very bad problem in Damascus. Uh, pollution is terrible. But Syrians, like everyone else, want cars. And, and there's no domestic auto industry. More to the point, why was this key opposition official taking time to, uh, when the rare opportunities when foreign journalists actually um, beat a path to his door, wasting his and our time in, in talking about quality of life things in one of the most oppressive uh, states in the Arab world. And it's not just because he was afraid. Uh, I, I think um, there, there's still, even in an oppressive state like Syria, there was still room to maneuver, to make certain critiques um, about the government, if not about certain personalities in the government. But, and yet, for some reason, this was the bee that was burning this man's bonnet. Um, so in the, in the five years after that, um, on almost a dozen trips to Syria, I, I, I spent very little time um, uh, with opposition leaders. It, it just wasn't worth, the, at least as I saw it, the effort and the potential to... Um, uh, uh, the potential to um, risk not getting a visa to come back into the country to spend time with, with opposition leaders when the big issue seemed to be, you know, whether Syria, would it uh, make peace with Israel or not? Um, and and I think that that experience was, was something that occurred regularly throughout my, my time in the region. I think... When the other, my other big failing as a, as a correspondent of the region was I think I and, and perhaps many of my colleagues overreacted to, um, oh, I'm sorry, let me just back up and, and saying that I, I do feel absolved somewhat of that is that when, when the um, democracy uprisings did occur and did happen, it was um, a surprise even to many of those opposition groups. Uh, even even in Egypt, which has a longer and and deeper history, uh, perhaps the where it had the most organized opposition. Uh, I met democracy activists in Tahrir Square who had been uh, working up to this point for many years, who were still stunned by the sudden popularity and acceptance and um, that uh, that these events had attracted. Um, so uh, we wasn't entirely alone in, in that. Um, now back to sorry, the other fail, my other failing as a correspondent, and, and I, I think I and my colleagues overreacted to the um, to the failures of the Bush administration's regime change policies and um, 
and its support of democracy in the Middle East. It was, um, uh, I remember once when a, a well-connected correspondent um, living in Washington flew out to the region and wrote a story for time about the hip young, uh, about hip young Arabs and how connected and hooked in and online they were. And, and at the time, I just, I did not see that. I saw a lot of angry young people. And I saw a lot of angry young people in Gaza who seemed to me that they were the driving force of history, not um, the comfortable uh, middle-class residents of um, posh parts of Cairo who were going to the American University of Cairo. And, and the, by, um, by playing kind of the, um, by working within the red lines of authoritarian governments and being able to work in Syria, I could also see how the, the Bush administration's regime change agenda had strengthened these regime, regimes. When um, the Syrian government held um, their sham parliamentary elections and their um, its bogus presidential referendum for um, President Bashar al-Assad, which was so blatantly hooked that I, um, so blatantly rigged that I myself was actually even able to vote um, um, and trust me, I was still nervous enough to vote for Bashar. Um, uh, but um, uh, even in, in situations like that, there in some sense was the feeling that the regime didn't really need to rig these elections because Syrians were very much aware of the chaos and turmoil right next door in Iraq and that, um, that the Bush administration had done so much to discredit um, Western-style democracy that um, Syrian-style democracy um, took on a kind of glossy sheen that it, it didn't deserve. And, um, and even in the early days of the, the Syrian uprising, uh, there, the, the country, the government still had the, the credit and the benefit of doubt of very many people who are concerned about what happens next in, in a region where, uh, where democracy co often comes at um, um, the rear end of Western occupation. Um, but I think the third, the third reason why I... Um, uh, why I and other Western journalists um, fail to anticipate the democracy uprisings is a kind of um, a harder one to dodge and involves a certain failure of imagination. And then uh, the rush to, um, and the, era after 9-11, there was a, um, a huge rush of West, the Western media and the Western reading and viewing publics to try and understand the Middle East. And um, those of us who are freelancers um, um, packed our bags and ran off to the regions that were hot. And, um, and various changes in the media suddenly 
um, gave us so much more flexibility in order to explain these difficult stories and this difficult region. Starting around um, 2006, we started to feel the impact of the internet and, um, and new media. And at first, this was just a, a very liberating and um, exhilarating phenomenon. There, for a magazine like Time, uh, it um, suddenly turned so much power over to individual correspondence that, that we had never had in, in the past. In, uh, the, during the Vietnam era, the um, correspondents in the field who adhered to the kind of traditional Time Inc. system whereby uh, individual correspondents would just file copious uh, notes about and kind of reports about the things that would happen, would send those files into New York and where um, an editor or a writer would amass a series of files and write the story him or herself. And that timing system had continued on for quite some time until very recently. And when I first started freelancing um, for time in Baghdad in 2004, that's still how we did things. But in 2006, um, with the internet, suddenly there was a whole new, um, uh, there was a whole new space for correspondents just to write their own stories right away. And very soon afterwards, the editors in New York themselves started realizing that people didn't uh, um, want that kind of, uh, people didn't go to the Newsweekly magazines for that kind of, the old kind of rehashed, edited, um, collaborative effort piece. Um, and if the Newsweeklies were gonna stay relevant, they would have to have more of an authorly voice and more input from field correspondence. And, they really gave us um, control over our own stories. They wanted I in there, our perspective, our story, our narrative, the things we saw. And, um, and this, the stories that were, were generated from editors in New York, um, when they did, were, were good ideas. Um, one editor in New York, uh, very uh, many years ago, really wanted me to write that damn Facebook in the Middle East story. Um, and frankly, I just, I didn't see it, I, you know. Um, but eventually the um, attrition and started to take hold in the region. And um, the internet, of course, started um, sucking the revenue out of uh, the business models of, of journalism. and. The um, and Time and other publications started gutting, uh, gutting their bureaus. And um, during my tenure, the Time closed its uh, Baghdad bureau, its Cairo bureau, um, and even for a time, its Jerusalem bureau. So that from my base in Beirut, I was covering um, a region, the region on my own, as the only staffer from. Uh, Iran through North Africa. I mean, this was Alexander the Great's beat, and I was doing it on my own. Um, and um, and since then, the uh, the kind, the way that things are covered are have much moved much more towards a kind of 
again, that group project of, uh, in the magazine of, of journalists feeding little bits of, uh, of a big think picture that's conceived in New York and um, done mostly by a broad array of freelancers um, and uh, with highly paid, recognizable uh, pundits and big names um, uh, spinning analysis from New York about what we should all be thinking about the region. Many of them who are very talented and brilliant, but when it comes to seeing this, um, that part of the picture um, before it happens, it's, that's just not something that the current model is, is, is able to do. And um, so I just, I'm running over time, so I just thought I would um, pause for a second and, and just, um, although, and although I've just painted a fairly grim picture about the, um, the ability of, the, of myself and the Western media to do, um, well, to predict the future or do something of value that you would want to read, I, I wouldn't say that um, things are, are that dire because, um, again, the Arab Spring and the democracy uprisings showed another um, possibility and another future for the things that we do. The, um, the people, I've never, in my eight years working in the Middle East, I've never felt the kind of, just frankly, love that I'd felt from, uh, from the people of Eastern Libya when, um, when I entered illegally through the border from Egypt to, um, to cover their fight against uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And, um, the, the hotels would refuse payment, people would buy us groceries, and uh, they would give literally uh, us their clothes off their backs. And, and this was because they knew the power um, of the media that, that had been denied them under that regime. Um, and at the same time that uh, there's been this um, un understanding among the Arab revolutionaries of the importance of Western media, there's the, suddenly the interest again from uh, from the audiences in in my home country in America and and in the West who who want to pay attention again not just to um, the celebrity um, kind of fodder that we that uh, th that our publications have been feeding them and not just the kind of um, power elite stories that that are um, um, kind of easy fodder for the sausage machinery to produce, but um, people are really palpably hungry, again, for stories about average lives and, and, and people who are changing the world. So um, I think the only um, piece of the, that puzzle that's missing is, is um, whether or not audiences and readers are willing to pay for that, but that is a topic for another conference. Thank you very much.